Good evening, everyone. Welcome on a beautiful October evening in Tucson, Arizona to Stewart Observatory for our third public evening uh, series lecture for the fall 2014 semester. And we welcome those of you who are listening to this podcast on iTunes U, on the World Wide Web, or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I would first like to let any students here in the audience know that if you are here for an assignment, I am the person who will stamp your assignment, validate that you are here, down at that table at the end of the question and answer period. Also, because it is a clear night, the Raymond D. White Jr. 21-inch telescope is open for your viewing pleasure. It's the white building next door with the big white dome on top, and uh, we have undergraduate telescope operators there that will, as long as it's up in the sky right now, they'll take requests and point the telescope for you. In addition, I wanted to bring to your attention, I have new flyers uh, announcing upcoming talks. And if you didn't grab one when you came in, make sure you grab one when you come out. I added the two talks in January there at the bottom. But I especially wanted to bring to your attention, um, I happen to be president of Phi Beta Kappa here at the University of Arizona this year. And every year, thanks to the national organization of Phi Beta Kappa, which is the oldest honorary society in the United States, founded in 1776, um, they pay the expense to bring a, a, a visiting scholar to give a public lecture and then a science colloquium. And so uh, Professor Timothy Rowe, who is the J. Nile Gregory Regents Professor of Geology at the University of Texas, will be our guest on November 5th and 6th. On November 6th, he's giving the science colloquium over at the Department of Geosciences. But since I'm in charge of setting up the public lecture, we're going to have it here, okay? Uh, so, uh, on November the 5th, in this room, we will have a special public lecture, and Dr. Rowe is going to tell us what happened to the dinosaurs. And from what I understand, it's not what you might think. It's not just a simple question of something hitting the earth. But I will also bring to your attention, those of you who have been attending the Lunar and Planetary Lab, our sister department, their public lectures, it turns out this last lecture by Travis Barman was supposed to be on November 5th, right? And if you have an old flyer, that's what it says. They graciously moved their lecture to November 19th. So Professor Barman's lecture over at Lunar Planetary Lab will be on November the 19th. And so November 5th, you come here to Stewart Observatory for, to find out what happened to the dinosaurs. Okay, so without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's speaker. It isn't often that I ask graduate students to give public lectures. Uh, almost every speaker you've listened to uh, over the last years has had a PhD degree in astronomy. Uh, but Megan uh, Ryder received her bachelor's degree from the University of California at Berkeley in physics and astronomy. She double majored and then came here for graduate school. And she is, I like to say, on the cusp of defending her thesis. Uh, that means she 
right now knows more about young stars than just about anybody in the world because that's when you reach the peak of knowledge is when you're preparing your PhD dissertation because that's the only time you get grilled okay and so you've got to know it all uh, but she has taken the time graciously to go to some of the local uh, astronomy clubs in southern Arizona to give talks and I've gotten such wonderful feedback on what a great speaker she is so I was very very happy to ask her to come here to take one night off from writing her PhD thesis to uh, come here and talk to you uh, on a topic that has to do with her thesis uh, growing pains the tumultuous youth of stars Megan Ryder Can you hear me now? Good. Okay, well, thank you very much for that nice introduction, Tom. Um, after such kind words, I probably should be very quick to point out that what you're looking at on this title slide is actually mostly galaxies and not stars. Uh, you should know that I know that, and I hope uh, that you know that, too. So I've promised to talk to you about stars growing up in the universe, and I'm starting with a picture of galaxies, because this picture is actually very important to my origin story. As a scientist, because in one of my very first astronomy classes in college, the professor put up this picture and said, we don't actually know why this galaxy right here is driving this big radio jet that we see out in the sky. And that was one of the very first times anybody admitted to me that we don't know everything. Which in retrospect was sort of a silly idea on my part. But here I am now, uh, many years later, um, studying jets from stars. And we think that the same mechanism that makes this jet from this galaxy makes the jets that we see from stars. And I think it's a nice reminder that in spite of all the pretty pictures that we have to recommend us, at the heart, what we're doing is studying physics. And it just happens to be that the universe is really an incredible laboratory to do so. So now that I've told you that what we don't know and what we don't understand is very inspiring to me, I'm going to start with what we do know and what we do understand so that we can get to what we don't know yet. So we need to start with how you make a star. So we know that we start with raw material of gas and dust, and that we end up with a star. And our understanding of this process is not quite this cartoonish. In fact, we've uh, observed quite a few phases. So we know we have to start with gas and dust. And in this picture here, you can see this big dark splotch, which is just a bunch of stuff in the way of all these stars in the background, telling us that there's a bunch of gas and dust there. Now this particular cloud may or may not collapse to form a star, but it certainly has enough material to do so. And we know that some clouds of gas and dust do eventually collapse to form stars, because we see stars all over the place. So as a cloud collapses, I don't know if you can see in this little cartoon to the right there, these itty bitty little arrows, if the cloud is spinning, that cloud will collapse and form a baby star that's gonna be surrounded by a disk. When something's spinning, stuff will collapse down into a plane. And that disk around the baby star is dumping more material onto the star. And something about this process of taking material from a disk and dumping it onto a star makes a jet come out of a star. And thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope, we can actually see evidence that we have these disks around stars. So if you have a star here and we're looking right at the edge of the disk, you'll actually block out the light of the star and see these really dark slices through, which we've got several pictures of right here, thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. There's a little bit of starlight reflecting off the dust and gas in that disk, but we don't actually see the star itself. 
you look at this lower panel down here, you'll actually see we can see the jet from the same source where we actually see a star. And we're actually going to see this object on the next slide when we talk a little bit more about jets, now that you know how much I love jets. So this is the same source turned on its side, and with the disk kind of going up and down now and the jet coming out. But I want you to notice the scale bar. So this line in every image corresponds to the same amount of space. So this one object, we can see the disk and we can see the jet, just like we think these things fit together. But that scale bar is much, much smaller on the other jets in this picture. So out here, we can see this jet stretching out in the sky, but it's too far away for us to see the disk. But this is still useful because we know we have to have a disk in order to make this jet. And we can observe these jets in many places where maybe we can't see the disk, which helps us learn how you grow these stars. We also think that disks are the places where we grow planets. Most of the planets in our solar system are all in the same plane, and they're all orbiting the same direction. And we've got a bunch of gas and dust in that disk to build planets. So you can go out and actually look for these big, dusty disks. So for example, this image from my friend and classmate, Kate Follett, where what they did is take the background light from a nebula and look for where a big disk of gas and dust is blocking it out, creating this dark splotch in the middle. Now, the star's also been subtracted out here, but you can see this circle corresponds to where the orbit of Neptune would be around our star. So this is a big thing of gas and dust with plenty of material to form planets. But I think trying to understand how you form planets is another good place to be reminded that we don't quite understand everything about forming planets yet. For example, my friend and classmate Vanessa Bailey found a planet earlier this year that's very, very far away from its host star. So the host star in this background image is way down here, and this circle, again, is the orbit of Neptune. So even if you imagine this disk around here, it's still not big enough for you to get a planet all the way out here. So this was a very exciting discovery because it brings up some questions about how do you form the different kinds of planetary systems that we're finding. As we find more and more planetary systems, we're finding more and more things that don't look like our own solar system. So this is an exciting area of research, especially here at the U of A. But we know that planets form one way or another. We certainly live in a solar system full of planets, and more and more we're finding them around other stars. This particular system is called HR 8799. The star is subtracted out in the middle here, but you can see one, two, three, four planets orbiting this star. So we seem to have a picture of how you can build a star kind of like the sun, right? Um, you start with a cloud of gas and dust. That collapses and forms a baby star surrounded by a disk that's going to dump more material onto that star. And from that disk, we might make planets as well and eventually get to something that looks like the sun and our solar system. And this particular cartoon is a little bit old. It says mostly from indirect tracers. But as we just saw, we've actually been able to directly observe many of the steps of this process now. But I think it's still a useful picture. Um, I like that it points out this is how you form a single star. And in particular, how you form a single star kind of like the sun. But here's the kicker. There are all different kinds of stars in the universe. So this is our sun, uh, a not that massive star. Um, there are many like it. There are many less massive than the sun. They're smaller. They're cooler. And so to us, they look redder. And there are many stars more massive than the sun, which are hotter, and those, so they look bluer. So we have all different kinds of stars that may or may not be best explained 
by this picture. So if I may uh, reveal myself as a member of the Sesame Street generation, we can sort of think of this as different types of stars ranging from big to bigger to biggest. And the time that it takes these stars to live the entirety of their lives goes from fast to faster to fastest up here for the most massive stars. So for a star like the sun, we think that it'll take about 10 billion years for the sun to live its life. But for the most massive stars, they will live and die in 10 million years or less. So before I had the privilege of spending all day every day doing astronomy, I probably would have heard, well, this is a long time, and this is a really long time, which means the lifetime of the most or least massive stars is basically ginormous. But I think it's worth taking a moment to think about just how big is big. So if I draw a number line up here and I put zero on one end and one billion on the other end, where would you put one million? So there's a lot of murmuring, and I think there are a few people who are on to me. One million's right there. One billion is a thousand million. So I tried to break this line up into a thousand pieces, and I couldn't get my line small enough to point to where one, one thousandth of this line is and still have it be visible. But it's a tiny, tiny fraction. So if you have a star that's going to live 10 billion years, or 10 million years, excuse me, that's not very much more of this line than one million is. But remember, a star like the sun is going to live 10 billion years. This line right here is only one billion. So if we want to draw a line that represents 10 billion years, that starts to wrap around this room. So if we're forming multiple kinds of stars at once, the most massive stars are going to live and die in the time that it takes a star like the sun just to be easing into its adulthood. So if we want to form a cluster of stars, we have to deal with the fact that we've got different sizes that are going to live a different amount of time, and they're going to look like different colors. So we have to take our little cartoon picture here of a cloud of gas and dust that's going to collapse to form one star, and think about maybe a bigger and messier cloud of gas and dust that's going to collapse to form a cluster of stars. And in fact, we see both of these things in the universe. So hopefully, what we understand about how you form one star like the sun will help us figure out how to form clusters of stars. But you'll notice the problem gets a lot messier if you're trying to make a cluster of stars than just one star. So why would we want to do this, make our job a lot harder, especially if you're really trying to graduate? Ah. So first of all, if anybody is uh, a fan of stargazing, you don't actually need a telescope for this one. Uh, I don't know if anybody can find the Pleiades. It's one of the few things I can reliably find in the night sky. It looks like six bright stars kind of clustered together, although it's called the Seven Sisters. Maybe someone has seen the seventh. I haven't. Uh, but if you take a telescope and you look at the Pleiades, and particularly if you take a telescope and put a camera on it and take a long exposure of the Pleiades, you see it's not just six bright stars. It's more like 3,000. It's actually a cluster of stars. And it looks like massive stars don't actually like to form by themselves. They like to form in big clusters of stars. 
So even though we can only see the brightest stars, we're looking at star clusters here. And that turns out to be the case when we're looking at other galaxies as well. You can see there are all these little blue knots out in the spiral arms. These are probably also clusters of stars. But they look blue because the light from those star clusters is dominated by their most massive members. And those most massive stars are going to be making a lot of blue light. So if we want to understand the formation of stars in other galaxies, we need to understand the formation of star clusters. And perhaps the last reason that we want to understand the formation of star clusters, this is the Orion Nebula, sort of the massive star-forming cluster next door, so to speak, is because it seems that most stars, not just the most massive ones, form in clusters. Estimates put that number close to 90% of stars forming in star clusters. So if we really want to understand star formation, we have to understand star clusters. So how are we going to tackle this big, messy problem that we've picked up for ourselves? So the astronomer's toolkit is, of course, to use uh, all of the light that the universe makes, of which the light that our eyes can see is only a small portion. But there's much more energetic light out here towards the X-rays and the ultraviolet, and much less energetic light out here towards the infrared and the radio. You could sort of think about how different kinds of light would give you a different view of things. For example, you can see that I'm standing up in front of you and I have brown hair and a brightly colored dress. You know, if uh, anybody else is as clumsy as I am, I've had plenty of x-rays where you can go and see your bones, right? This isn't a perfect analogy. If we turned out the lights, you probably couldn't see me. If you don't have an x-ray machine and you're not Superman, you probably can't see my bones. But I do actually glow in the infrared. Humans actually glow in the infrared. So if we think of this picture over here as looking at heat, then say after a hot summer day in Tucson, when you're out walking around, you might look more like this bottom picture here, where brighter colors, uh, um, or excuse me, lighter colors are warmer temperatures. So after walking around outside, you'd be very light colored because you'd be radiating heat trying to cool off after summer in Tucson. Or if you're like me, after sitting in an air-conditioned office, you probably look more like this picture up here, with the nose is very dark and my hands would be very dark, getting cold sitting in the air conditioning. So we can use different colors of light to try and figure out what's going on. And this kind of neat picture from NASA shows us uh, a view through the plane of our galaxy, uh, just of different colors of light tracing different things in our galaxy. So for example, there's molecular hydrogen up here, so some of the raw material to form more stars. If you look in the infrared, you can see warm dust from where stars are maybe heating up the dust. If you look in the optical, so the light that our eyes can see, you see all this black stuff all over the place, which is, again, dust, the raw material for making more stars. So. And if we put this onto a star-forming region, in this case, we've got one dark cloud, and we look at it in the optical, and all we see that it's dark and dusty. But we look in the infrared, we see that warm star embedded in that dark cloud. If we use this for star clusters, we see that sometimes we can see a few stars and the gas and dust that they light up. But if we look in the infrared, we can see a lot more stars and study the cluster in detail. So that's going to be our toolkit. The question is, what star cluster are we going to do this with? So this uh, neat schematic of the Milky Way that I borrowed from National Geographic uh, handily shows us that we are here. The Orion Nebula, which we mentioned is, say, our uh, nearest neighbor for a massive star-forming region, is kind of next door, at least in this picture. But I want to talk today about the Carina Nebula. 
Now, on a picture like this, the Carina Nebula doesn't look very far away, but it is four times further away than Orion is, which does make our job harder, right? And it kind of does that in two ways. So one way, for example, if I'm standing right up here talking to the people right up in the front row, not only can you see me, that I have you know, brown hair, you could probably also count my freckles. Whereas if you're sitting in the back row, you might not know that I have freckles. And the other thing that could make your job harder is if I'm talking to the people right here in the front row, there's not a whole lot between me and the people sitting right here in the front row. But if you're sitting in the back row, if this is a very big lecture hall or someone's wearing a big hat, you've got a lot of people to look around to see whoever it is is standing right up in front. So we can't do anything about the fact that the Carina Nebula is four times further away. There's some things we won't be able to see. But our job is a little bit easier, uh, and it's nicely shown in this picture, that we're actually looking between the spiral arms here. So instead of looking through all kinds of stars and gas and dust trying to see one nebula uh, behind another, we're actually looking through a relatively clear bit of space, so we get a good view of the Carina Nebula. So what do we get for our trouble by going farther away? So if you think of the Orion Nebula as having one very massive star in it, when we go to the Carina Nebula, we get 70. And since massive stars really don't like to form by themselves, it's not just that you're getting 70 more massive stars, you're getting more stars of all masses. So if we look at a picture of the Carina Nebula, this is the whole thing, something like three degrees on a side. You notice this is kind of a big, weirdly shaped mess. Um, this is a, an optical image, so the light that our eyes can see. And as we step through longer wavelengths, you can see that there's kind of a lot going on in this nebula as we look at it in different colors. But what I want to talk about today is a mosaic made of this small central region of the nebula with the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is one of my absolute favorite pictures to come out of the Hubble Space Telescope. So I'm going to just leave this up here for a moment so we can sort of take it in. This thing's got a lot going on. So you can see there's a star cluster already in this. I only pointed out one. There's actually another one over here. It's actually full of very massive stars. They're done forming. They're in the sort of their middle age. There's a lot of dust, especially along here on the bottom, more along this side over here. So we have the raw material to form more stars. We have a few stars that are sort of in between. They're on their way to forming, sort of poking out here in this weird dust pillar. We have a very massive star that's uh, at the end of its life and likely to go supernova any time now, which, you know, astrophysically speaking, tomorrow means it could be tomorrow, October 14th, or it could be a thousand years from now, and astrophysically speaking, that would still kind of be tomorrow. But this, you know, any day now, this star could go supernova. And then there's this funny little object over here that might actually be what our solar system looked like when it formed. So I'll come back to that. But I wanted to start by looking at this dust at the bottom here in the nebula. And looking at these weird things poking out, I kind of couldn't help but think of Monument Valley in Utah, if anybody has been. I haven't, but this picture really makes me want to go. Um, and so my understanding of these buttes is that they're formed by erosion. So you started out with this big plateau of rock that gradually over time, wind and water sort of roar away the softer material here. 
And only in a few places do you have hard cap rock protecting uh, the material beneath it from erosion, leaving behind the mittens here. So when I look at the star forming region where we have a couple of things still sticking out and most of the stuff has been worn back considerably, kind of looks like it's being eroded. And in fact it is, right? We're right next to this huge star cluster full of very massive stars. So they're hot, they're bright, and they have these powerful winds that are sort of blasting everything around it. So you can sort of think about it, if you're that dust pillar poking out right next to this star cluster, it's going to make Tucson in the summer seem downright balmy. So these dust pillars are getting blasted and blown away. So maybe they have some particularly dense material at their head helping them survive when all the gas and dust around them is disappearing. And in fact, we can sort of look at a rogues gallery of all the things in the Carina Nebula, like the oddly shaped things uh, all over the place. I'm rather fond of this one down in the corner. It reminds me of my brother Matt being very excited that he got into UT Austin. Uh, you know, we can anthropomorphize these things all day. Um, there are others that really uh, need no explanation, I would argue. Um, but it does beg the question, you have these weird blobby things, how do they survive? There's no obvious star forming in this thing, and yet it hasn't been totally blasted away by all these massive stars. Well, it could be that it's in the process of forming stars, and we don't see the evidence for that yet. And in fact, there are other places where we do see that the stars are currently forming and things that kind of look like those dust pillars poking out. So if we zoom in here, uh, this is the pillar that was circled in the box on the previous slide, and this is another one that's further away and off the edge of the image. But you can see there are these big dust pillars, and they kind of look like what we expect a forming star to look like, right? They've got these big jets sticking out, right? This thing's very far away, so we're not going to be able to see the disk, but we see the jet, which suggests that it's there. If we look in different colors of light, we can see there's this big bright star here and this big jet, so that sure looks like a star's forming there. Except that when we look at the other guy in different colors of light, we see a jet, but no star. But we see that these things are moving, so they've got to be jets. It's not just something that inconveniently looks like a jet, right? So what you're looking at is just two images blinking back and forth. On the top here are two images taken about four years apart. On the bottom, two images taken about nine years apart. And you can see that this star here is blowing this jet out and this jet's moving out somehow, some way. But I want to point out again, this jet that we're looking at is at the very tip of this pillar of gas and dust, right next to this massive star cluster right here. And again, it's blasting it with all kinds of winds and radiation and pushing it back. So the best way that I can think to describe what might be going on here is with a Foxtrot cartoon. So for those of you who are not familiar with Foxtrot, Paige and Peter are brother and sister. And Paige has a thing of cotton candy. And her brother Peter wants a bite. So Paige tells Peter he can have one bite. And Peter proceeds to take Paige's cotton candy and wad it up into a tiny little ball that he's holding up in the last frame. And he says, now, for my one bite. So while this may have been a fluffy pillar of gas and dust in the past, now that it's got all this, gas, um, all this radiation and winds blasting the thing, it may have been wadded up into a little thing that's sufficiently dense that you can hide a star in here and we wouldn't be able to see it. 
We don't know that for sure, but it seems like a likely possibility for this guy. So I want to talk about, oops, I want to talk about uh, this possible future supernova here. So again, this is a very, very massive star. It's lived for probably about three and a half million years, and it's about to go supernova. So we have images of this thing in more detail, and it looks kind of weird, right? It's thrown off all this gas and dust. And again, that same professor who showed uh, us the picture on the title slides described the life of a star thusly. He said, a star's life is a battle between gravity and whatever else the star can come up with. So in that model of uh, stellar evolution, this star is running out of ideas. So these temper tantrums, as it's fighting very hard not to end its life in a supernova, has created this huge shell of gas and dust, sort of thrown off an explosion. And that's what we're seeing here from a star that's embedded right in here. But it's one of the signs that the end is near for this star. So when a star like this goes supernova, uh, as we saw, it's not exactly in a vacuum. It's in the middle of this huge nebula. So when this star goes supernova, it's probably going to hit the stuff around it. I borrowed this little animation from George Rieke. It just shows that as that uh, explosion propagates, it's going to smack into all the gas and dust around it, which if you're just sitting there, nothing's happening. Maybe you would continue that way. But when a blast wave hits you like that, that might be the thing that kicks the cloud, that causes it to collapse and form more stars. Alternately, you might have stars forming in there that you can't see as it is, and when the supernova goes by, it pushes the gas and dust away so that you can see the stars forming in the cloud. It's very hard to tell those two things apart, it turns out. But that brings us to this possible future solar system right over here, which you will notice is between this future supernova and this big cloud of gas and dust. So this is a super weird-looking little thing. It's a little, you know tadpole-shaped thing of gas and dust. Again, we see a jet coming out of it, so we know there's got to be a star in there. We don't see the star. But again, it's right next to this very, very massive star, so maybe it's been compressed to hide the star. But when that supernova goes off, this little object is between the supernova and the big wall of gas and dust. It's probably going to get smacked with the supernova. And not just the shock of the explosion going off, but supernovas turn out to be how we make some of the heaviest elements in the universe. Now, as somebody who's grown kind of attached to my smartphone, I'm glad that we have silicon and iron and a variety of other heavy elements here on Earth that we know must be made in a supernova. But to get enough of those elements here on Earth, the question is, how close did our Earth have to be and our sun and the uh, forming solar system have to be to a supernova in order for us to get enough of these heavy elements to see the chemistry that we see, say, in meteorites today. Now, there uh, has been recent re-estimation on the uh, time scales that these elements decay. So it's not clear exactly how close our solar system had to be to a supernova explosion. But there had to be one that created many of the elements that we have for Earth today. And one possibility is that by being close to a supernova, that that injected many of those elements into rocks so that we could have the chemistry that we see today, suggesting that this might be the kind of environment that our sun formed in. So there's a lot going on <laughs> in even this small portion of the Carina Nebula. There's a cluster of stars here already formed 
who seems to be uh, making a mess of things around it, uh, certainly blasting the gas and dust um, and lighting up the stars that are forming over here. We have some things that are just about at the end of their evolution, some things that are in the middle and some things that aren't yet beginning. So we sort of uh, find this rather poetic, makes me think of John Donne, that no man is an island. Um, so if you have any questions about how these things are all interacting, I'd be happy to take them at this point. So thank you for your question. Yes? You talk about dust and I keep on hearing the term. What is the particle size distribution, or maybe I should say object's size distribution of the dust? So the kind that's very dark, um, so yeah, I, yes, I was just to say, um, so the question was, um, you know, what is the particle size distribution of the dust? Or yeah, so there's, uh, there's probably a distribution of sizes. As you say, the stuff that's going to show up in this image is going to be very, very small. Um, and so there are going to be a lot of very small grains all over the place. And I think um, somebody who knows more about planet formation could probably tell you in detail uh, how hard it is to go from the very little dust grains to the... Um, very big dust grains. So we know that there's got to be a lot, a lot of little dust in here. Um, but we don't have to say so. Are you talking about sand sized particles or are you talking about huge building sized particles? So far away. Right. I'm talking sand sized particles or smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny little things. So, yes. We have a question in there. We have a question up here. I have a question concerning the density of these clouds because I would think that um, um, for um, accretion of stars and planets that you would have to achieve some kind of a critical density so that gravity then all of a sudden takes over and causes things to collapse down either to form a star, a, a dwarf star or a, a planet or even asteroids and so forth. Or even material has to somehow um, coalesce in such a way so that molecules or atoms come together to even form these dust particles of a sand size? So yes, that's a good question. Uh, so yes, there does seem to be a density threshold for which uh, material will collapse, and some of that depends on temperature, which is tricky in a region like this, right? Everything's really bright because you have these really hot stars heating things up. But if you can protect material enough that it's cold enough, then the density required for it to collapse is lower, and it can collapse and form stars. What part does dark matter play in all of this? Ah, what part does dark matter play in all of this? That's a good question. Probably not much on these scales. So. What major elements comprise the beginning of the nebula? Like, what, what, what's the most abundant in, in this picture? What would be the most abundant element? So hydrogen is probably going to be one of the most abundant things in any star-forming region you look at. For this particular picture here, um, it's, the picture itself is made up of three color images um, focusing on a particular transition of the elements of hydrogen, sulfur, and oxygen. So. We have a question. question here, and then I'll get you. Okay. I just wondered if they looked at like the tadpole 
uh, image that you had, if they looked at that in infrared, were they able to see the star behind the tadpole? So this is the paper I'm working on right now. And you know what the weird answer is? No. The jet looks really weird in the infrared, but we don't see the star, which means you have to have an even bigger column of material, like an even thicker wall, basically, to hide the star in there, um, which is weird, right? Like, well, I was going to say, and a, uh, a star isn't exactly an easy thing to hide, you would think. Um, but it turns out, it looks like the jet goes right through this globule where we see no evidence for a star. It doesn't look like this guy's moving, so it doesn't look like it could have ejected the jet and then made a break for it. This guy's sort of sitting out here, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with this big jet, and yet we don't see anything in this globule. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Sorry, what did you say? At any wavelength? So we've looked at it in the optical and we've looked at it in the infrared. There's a new radio telescope that can look at very long wavelengths at very high resolution, which is going to be our best bet for going after something like this. Now, if you could help me figure out how to convince the time allocation committee that this is a very interesting question, I would be happy to report back to you on what we see. Are you, <laughs> yes. are you referring to the ALMA? Yes. Yes, which is in Chile. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. yes. Can you help us understand a little bit more about the physics of why the disks make these jets and why the jets are so so huge and and is it the spinning is it charge or what's going on here do you have any so there's the the simple answer to the question and the messy answer to the question the simple answer is i call that job security um, because we don't fully understand the process but that's not to say that we know nothing um, so if we go back We go back to this picture, is that? Um, so if I go from, uh, I guess, zero to nerd on you here, we know that there's a star in here and that the disk and the star are interacting. One thought is that you have a magnetic field through the disk and another magnetic field uh, that comes from the star, which is going to be shaped differently, so a big dipole. And where those two things connect, they will interact, helping you get material from the disk onto the star. But not all of the material that comes from the disk will go onto the star. And something about the magnetic field geometry will redirect a fraction of that into the outflow. So uh, one of the things we're working on testing now is with very, very detailed observations going in, looking right down deep into the point where that would happen to see if things look right geometrically for that. The other thing to test is to see if stars of all masses form uh, jets that look like this, because that magnetic field geometry that you need for the star isn't produced by stars of all masses. So if stars uh, of low mass do look like this and very massive stars don't, that means something different probably is happening. The question is, what are the velocities of the jets here? So, for the. Uh, compared to the rotational velocity of the disk. So, I guess one answer would be that, um, well, there's the rotational velocity, but there's also the outflow velocity. Having measured the outflow velocities, yes, they're moving uh, 
pretty fast for human scale, so 200 kilometers per second or close to a half billion miles, if you like, which astrophysically speaking is not that fast. Um, but it's pretty high speed for that material. In terms of people trying to measure the rotation of the jet, that would be faster than in the disk because it's smaller in. Uh, I know it's a difficult measurement and people have tried to do it. I don't know what the numbers are. We have a question up here. Yes. Now going back to that picture you had of the, the tadpole, and also there was another one, I can't remember where it was, but in both of those you mentioned, you know, you weren't sure where the star was. Yes. And in both of those, they almost look, look like pictures that were sort of analogous to a day where there was a small cloud hiding the sun, and that that cloud is kind of occluding the scar, a star directly behind it because there's kind of this glow on the edges of those clouds. And I just wonder if that's not a star. Have you figured out what that is? So I think there were two questions here. So if we're talking about a thing like this where we don't see the star but the edges are glowing, is there a chance that that's not a star? Right. The, the one that, so. that tadpole picture I, th was a, I thought was yep. a good example. This one. Right. There's like, especially on the right-hand side, you kind of see that glow in the big blob. And right that here? Almost looks like on a, to me, that almost looks like an occluded star. So I guess there are uh, a couple of questions. This is, or a couple of uh, details about this. So this is part of where the environment makes our job harder. So this, that tadpole sits right here, and there are all these massive stars right here lighting it up. So the reason that we see the glow on the edge here is because it's essentially getting lit up with a flashlight from a bunch of these really massive stars. So whether or not there's something in there, that would glow. Now then there's the separate question of why does it have this jet, which we can also measure this thing moving. This one's about 100 kilometers a second. Um, but we don't see a star in there. So do we have enough material to actually hide the star inside that globule? Or does something weirder have to be going on that we don't even have a star in the globule? So. Uh, Megan, in case you do eventually find a star behind there, we'll have to take this gentleman's name because you'll have to reference him yes. in your thesis. <laughs> got two more questions. Uh, on these jets, is the, uh, the axis of the jet in the, uh, you show them horizontally and vertically, but are they all in the uh, perpendicular to the plane of the, of the galaxy, or are, are they randomly dis distributed? So are all the jets uh, oriented the same way in the plane of the galaxy? And the answer is no. Uh, they're too far away to see in this picture, but if I try and point, this guy's, the jet axis goes this way, in these, this jet axis goes this way, this one goes a little bit this way, there's one up here that goes almost straight back and forth this way, um, oops. there's a little guy right here and the jet goes this way, one of the other jets that we looked at is off the bottom and it goes this way, so they're so oriented the whole, all over the place. So if this whole galaxy we're in is spinning, Yeah, they're doing their own thing. I think local effects are much stronger. Okay, and then the other question was your very first slide. Okay. The introductory one. It had some uh, uh, things that I've seen in pictures before that n were never really explained to me. 
See that one right, that, right down at the bottom there? That look like they're disks. This? Yeah, is that, a, is that a galaxy on its edge? That's a galaxy, yes. Almost everything in this picture is actually a galaxy. Well, then why are some of them round? Are we looking down the axis of them and, and we're looking perpendicular at the other one? So this is a good question, and there are two things that could make the galaxies look different. One is, as you suggest, if there's a, a disk-like galaxy that we see this way, it's going to look you know, sort of linear. We see it this way, it's going to look round. The other thing is some galaxies are disky and some galaxies are round. So I think the galaxy here in the middle here is actually mostly just a round galaxy. So even if we looked at it from another direction, it would still look pretty round. So it's both. Are there any spherical ones? Uh, I think yes. They come in all different shapes and sizes, it turns out. There's so there's actually a um, citizen science project online where they're taking galaxies found with various imaging surveys and you uh, can log in as um, an interested citizen and actually look at different pictures of galaxies and try to help them classify what they look like. Is there anything weird going on? Does it look like there are two galaxies running into each other? Because trying to figure out which is which is actually a big problem. So we're calling on interested parties to participate. <laughs> Do any of the slides you have show anything about the curvature of light? Do any the of bending the or the curvature of light? Not in this particular uh, presentation, no. Any other, another question here? Do we have any uh, concept of the mechanism that determines what size a star is going to be when it's formed? That is a great question. Um, I know there are people who would give you a better answer than I would, so let me answer a slightly different question and say that the universe seems to have a rule for this, uh, where it decides uh, at least that it will form more little stars than big stars. So how it decides what will be big and what will be little and how it decided this particular rule for making big stars versus little stars, uh, I think is a topic of much interest and to see if this is universal for all of time and all of space. Um, and I think I better stop there before I put my foot in my mouth, so. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, we'll take one more question, because we've got plenty of time. Could we, could we please go back to that last slide that you just had up? Uh, if you remind me what's on it, then yes. <laughs> the, the, the jet, the, the beginning slide that's pink yep. with the jet. Yep. Yes. The glob on the upper left is fairly spherical in its size, but the one on the lower right is, looks like it's being shredded or there's something that's optically refracting. Have you got any idea what's going on with that? So I think there are a couple of different ways that they could look different. Um, once this jet gets out into the environment out here, it's a little bit different than it is for stellar jets. So I can answer that question better for stellar jets than for galaxy jets, if that's okay with you. So one thought, if we look at this uh, sort of weird structure on the one side, we've got this very narrow jet and these big broad things that seem to be like shocks in the jet and sort of expanding lobes outside. In the case of stellar jets, these might look different if they're going into different environments. Uh, 
So if there's not a whole lot in the way of the jet, it might look like this on one side. And if there is a lot in the way of the jet, so it's running into something, it'll get this weird blobby thing on the other side. We also see in stellar jets, sometimes one side doesn't look like the other. And it's not entirely clear whether or not that's intrinsic to how the jet is made or it's something about the environment. So it could be possible that things um, diverge very, very close to where the jet is launched. And I don't know uh, what the answer to that would be on the scale of a galaxy. Ah, what is the cross here? This is one of the two stars in the image because it's so close and so bright, it's actually diffracting off of the telescope optics. Yeah. All right, I would like to remind you that our next talk is, or lecture, is two weeks from tonight, which is October the 27th. Professor Caitlin Crowder is one of our brand new assistant professors. And whenever we get new faculty members, I like to introduce them to the public and I ask them to give a public lecture. And she's an exoplanets scientist. She's going to talk about exploring the architecture of planetary systems, both home and abroad. So that will be Caitlin Crowder in two weeks. Please, we've got plenty of time. If you've never looked through a big telescope, feel free to walk up two flights of stairs, the white building with the white dome on top, to see what's up in the sky tonight. I will stamp student assignments down here, and let's thank Megan one more time.